0: Well, my hope and the hope of the company is that healthcare becomes affordable and accessible.
1: That's Dr. Jumi Popola. She's the Vice President for Molecular Genetics and Biobank Operations at the Nigerian health tech and genomics startup, 54Gene.
0: And then ultimately it has to be personalized. So people should have that confidence that the treatment they are given will work for them the first time round. We need to move away from umbrella approach by just using a drug that works for everybody else. We need to confirm that it works for the African man, for the African woman. If it doesn't, we need to design drugs that are unique to them. These are the biggest barriers today to how much progression has happened on the continent.
1: Whenever we talk about progress in the global context, there are two categories related to health, child mortality rates and life expectancy, that are used to determine how far we've come. Child mortality rates globally sit at 3.91%, according to the World Bank, down from 18.5% in 1960 and 36.2% in 1900. We've seen tremendous progress, but unfortunately, African countries are still lagging behind their global counterparts. The rate of infant deaths in sub-Saharan Africa is almost twice as high as the global average, at 7.58%. There are 53 countries with child mortality rates worse than the global average. 44 are African countries. The bottom 21 are African countries as well. And as for life expectancy, the global average is 72.74 years. And in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's 61.62 years. 43 of the bottom 50 are African countries, and the bottom 27 are African countries as well. Now, there are surely many macro factors that contribute to these statistics, and healthcare is undoubtedly a major contributor. Low rate of insurance coverage coupled with high out-of-pocket spend and low incomes all lead to more reactive and less effective medical care. But healthcare is a complicated space, spanning multiple stakeholders and varying by country and even disease. So in this episode, we go deep into the healthcare value chain, from diagnostics to labs to clinics and pharmacies, to better understand how it all works, and how those we speak to in this episode are working to get improved care to Africans across the continent. Before we start, we'd like to thank MFS Africa for their sponsorship of the entirety of this season of The Flip. MFS Africa recently announced their $100 million Series C to further expand their hub, which already connects over 330 million mobile wallets across 30-plus countries, to further expand that network across the continent. The round was co-led by the private equity firm Africanvest out of their perpetual fund called Five, or the financial inclusion vehicle. And I had the opportunity to speak to its partner, Julius Tichelar, about this investment and their vision for financial inclusion on the continent.
2: So for Africanvest as as a firm for financial services, uh, we have been investing in, in the sector for almost three decades. And what we have seen especially in the last, let's say, 10 years or so, is, is really this accelerated transformation of the sector. And our strategy here is really to support companies in their journey to take advantage of this development. We as a firm believe that payments are still to grow in Africa for a very, very long time. We are just starting, when you compare most African markets to the West, I have to say, I think we're just starting in Africa. And MFS has really positioned itself really in the middle of all this. I think the company management, the founder, have really built uh, an extremely powerful network over the last years, not only focusing on the key or on the largest markets, but really going everywhere and really building the reach of the network. And I think that's really what we liked. And what, what we found interesting is, as well is that it's not only P2P or remittances, but that a significant part of volumes is actually trade-related. And that means that MFS solves a real problem problem in Africa today because cross-border payments are still a real pain point, especially in markets with less developed financial systems. And connecting all these wallets and and providing payment services uh, to everyone with a mobile wallet in Africa is just super important.
1: We'll hear a bit more from Julius on investing in Time Horizons later in the show. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. How can Africans receive greater access to quality healthcare? That's the problem we'll attempt to explain in this episode. And it's a wicked problem, one that's caused by a variety of different intertwined factors. First, let's talk about how healthcare is supposed to work. When you're healthy, you're nonetheless encouraged to get regular checkups, especially when you reach a certain age. The goal is to catch diseases early, making it easier and more affordable to treat them. But to understand the nature of a disease requires diagnostics. Depending on the disease in question, it might require a saliva test or blood tests, or in the case of cancers, more invasive tests like a biopsy. Then when you're sick, you go to a doctor or a hospital, and again, they prescribe various diagnostic tests. And these doctor's visits or hospitalizations or tests, they cost money. In one part of the world, most people are insured, either through private or employer insurance or public health schemes. But most medical care in African markets is out of pocket. That's the first problem.
0: Right now, there is a trend towards reactive medicine for the reasons of the healthcare being private.
1: That's 54 Genes' Dr. Jumi Popola, who we heard from in the opener.
0: So there will be the reluctance for an individual as soon as he develops a simple disease or a simple symptom to want to self-medicate because that will be ultimately cheaper for him.
1: This is particularly problematic when patients actually have a disease that can't be treated by self-medicating.
0: So what happens is diseases present in hospitals at a much later stage where the patient has probably self-medicated, has gone to pharmacies to get some symptom-relieving medication, but not necessarily treatment medication, and then have not been successful, and then they go to clinic. Of course, the fear, given the average earning for an individual in Africa, the fear is the cost. Let me exhaust everything that I can before I escalate to my doctor. They're managing symptoms, they're doing treatment within their financial capacity, but these aren't necessarily the right or the appropriate treatment strategies for them. by the time the doctors are seeing these people, their symptoms have probably uh, gone beyond simple treatment.
1: So a high degree of -of out-of-pocket spending on healthcare Coupled with low incomes of patients leads to reactive treatment. And it also leaves patients with limited accessibility to high-quality healthcare.
3: So the healthcare um, issues in Africa are actually and in emerging markets are actually very different than uh, what we see in the, in the Western world. So in Africa is actually access. It's, it's access, it's a lack of access to quality healthcare.
1: That's Emilian Popa. He's the co-founder and CEO of Alara Health lack of access to quality healthcare is a function of several things. First, much as we've talked about earlier in the season, the first has to do with last mile fragmentation and distribution. Whereas in developed markets, there are larger and more equipped and staffed hospitals or clinics, that there are tens of thousands of primary care centers in a market like Kenya helps with accessibility, but it creates a problem from a quality perspective.
3: There are 15,000 small primary care centers in Kenya, so a lot, but uh, most of them are run by a nurse and none of them has anything else than, you know, maybe a very, very basic tools. And um, they can't do much.
1: And that's the second problem. Diagnostics requires equipment and expertise, which many of these care centers lack. And they lack in particular due to the lack of payers in the healthcare system.
3: The second biggest issue is actually the fact that most of Africa is actually out of pocket in terms of medical spend. And, you know, Kenya has uh, 2.7% or something like that. South Africa has 15 plus percent, but most of the rest of Africa is in the one or less than 1%. So, and when someone spends $70 per year in healthcare and 80 to 90% of this is actually medication, and you compare that to, I don't know, $700 in South Africa and then $10,000 in the US, you can imagine the challenges and what can you really get for $70?
1: For Emilian and Alara Health, access to quality healthcare means access to providers treating patients using quantitative measurements.
3: When you go and see a doctor, if that doctor or nurse just looks at you without doing any quantitative measurement of your health state or any kind of baseline, it's a problem, right? So diagnostics should be the beginning or at least part of the decision making in healthcare. And we you know, often say, there are papers saying, you know, 70% of the clinical decisions should be based on diagnostics. And the reality is that in the places where we are, very few decisions in healthcare are made on, on proper quantitative biomarkers.
1: Now, in a higher income environment, there are labs which run the tests that doctors conduct, but just building labs alone won't solve the problems in question.
3: When I started Ilara, I was going into low-income areas of Nairobi, and there was no lab. I was Google mapping for labs, and there is no lab. So my immediate entrepreneurial conclusion, well, there is no lab, there should be a lab, so let me be labs. But the reality is that you can't just be labs, because if you just be labs and there is no one to prescribe tests, you, you're not going to solve the problem. So we thought that how can we actually bring those labs on the desk very, very close to the patient?
1: The opportunity for Alara Health is, first and foremost, to get diagnostic devices to the last mile. What
3: we are doing is not only that we scout the world for this point-of-care diagnostic technology, which is evolving very, very fast. In the same way, you know, our iPhones and our phones have evolved in the past 10 years. So it's evolving very fast. It's becoming cheaper and cheaper. So we identify, we curating those devices. We bring them into Africa. We finance them. So we place them door-to-door into those nurse-led Uh, medical facilities, but within a leasing model to make it affordable to them to have those devices to be able to deliver better diagnostics and cheaper diagnostics and obviously to be able to make revenue and to be able to pay us back that leasing fee. And on top of this, we connect those devices with a piece of technology to be able to get the results in a centralized way and communicate them back to the clinician and eventually back to the patient.
1: Now, let's take a step back for a moment to talk about diagnostics there is a need to avail a wider degree of diagnostic tests and services to African patients. But why? Why are diagnostics so important?
0: When we talk about molecular diagnostics, rather than your doctor or healthcare practitioner just looking at the symptoms that you're expressing or, you know, the physical uh, manifestation of your symptoms, he's looking at the causal effect. It's going to the genes
1: Doctors need to look at this molecular level to best diagnose and treat the disease in question.
0: So what you see as a symptom originates from a, a gene or a protein in the first instance. So when we say molecular, we're looking at what is the gene or what is the protein in your body that is giving you the symptom that the doctor can see, can observe, and can measure. And oftentimes, tackling a disease or a disorder from the molecular level, from the genetic level, gives you a much broader picture and a better opportunity to treat it effectively. Because symptoms are shared between diseases, as you know. This, you know more, many diseases can present with similar symptoms. For you to know the exact disease that is driving the symptom of your patient, if you go to the genetic level, you have a better chance of treating it in one round successfully.
1: And different diagnostic tests require different types of samples.
0: A lot of molecular diagnostics tests can be done using non-invasive samples. By non-invasive sample, I mean something that doesn't require the patient giving their blood sample. They can collect saliva as a sample type. They can collect hair or nail in some of the tests like kinship analysis, you know, human identification, and even genetic predisposition to diseases. We, we can use sample types like saliva.
1: These might be tests that can be done at any clinic or pharmacy. And increasingly, pharmacies have access to cheap diagnostic tests for that purpose. But other tests require increasing levels of expertise and equipment.
0: When it comes to tests that require a bit more in depth analysis, it means we need a lot more DNA, not just the small quantity found in in saliva and hair and nail. And for those, we would need blood. So when we talk about cancer, heart disorder, sickle cell, And some allergy tests, when we want to go all out, we might need blood. Simply because blood is a much richer source of DNA, it will give us a lot more DNA of higher quality and allow us to do a lot of analysis. Multiple genes, multiple mutations can be measured using blood. And of course, for some diseases like cancer, you don't just want to look at what is happening systemically throughout the person's body, which you can get from the blood. You want to know what is happening in the tumor itself. So you might need a tumor sample.
1: And like Alara Health, 54Gene is on one hand working with frontline healthcare workers to get more affordable diagnostic tests closer to the last mile.
0: A lot of the first line of treatment uh, for Africans is their pharmacy. That's their primary care facility. 54Gene is also looking to leverage this fact by engaging pharmacies early on, not just engaging pharmacies, but empowering them to be able to help with the diagnostic tests um, that patients might require.
1: Then on the other hand, they're also building a laboratory and local infrastructure to ultimately reduce the cost of diagnostics altogether because Nigeria today lacks the infrastructure.
0: So today in Nigeria, when a patient gets diagnosed for cancer, the first thing is that oftentimes the disease has progressed beyond sort of early stage. So by the time the patient goes to hospital, they're really sick. And until now, there has not been infrastructure in Nigeria to test specifically for those diseases. And so clinicians and oncologists, so cancer doctors are collecting the sample of the tumor and have to send them to either their own partner laboratories outside of Africa or they have partnered with university teaching hospitals elsewhere or private laboratories outside of the continent to send the sample to for processing. What that does is it drives up the cost of the test in the first instance. They have to wait longer for their diagnosis or confirmatory diagnosis. And then even in terms of access to the drugs they need for those cancers, because there isn't a robust testing program for some of these drugs to understand which patients will benefit from it. There's not many pharmaceutical efforts to have those drugs available on the continent. We want to establish those laboratories and those testing capacities in country and in continent. We want to train the staff we need to be able to do those tests. We want to ensure that our labs are internationally certified so that any oncologist, any cancer doctor feels confident that they can send their sample to us and get the same results as they would if they sent that sample to the US or to Europe, as an example. And when we do that, what we uh, ultimately provide the doctor and the patient is faster access to results, lower cost because the logistics of even shipping the cost is no longer transferred to the patient, and accessibility to tests that are specialized and would otherwise not be available in country or in continent, both for the doctor and the patient.
1: Now, a bit earlier in the show, we talked about out-of-pocket healthcare costs. The challenge for all that we just described is that there are few payers in the system. The hope is that with technology and through investments of this kind, it can bring more payers into the system. And it raised a question in my mind. If we need more diagnostics in order to properly diagnose and prescribe treatments, and if a barrier to diagnostics is price, why don't pharma companies, for example, subsidize the cost of diagnostics? assuming that it would lead to an increase in prescriptions. Here's a million again.
3: One of the things to solve this is bringing payers in the system. So where do you get a payers, right? A payer can be an insurance company or a medical scheme, or can be a pharma company, or can be anyone else, can be an organization. So why would those people pay for anything? You brought a great point, right? A pharma company would want actually to, you know, subsidize a diagnostic device to be able to deploy a certain medication, which may be paid by the government insurance scheme, in a certain market. And that's actually one of the partnerships that we currently have.
1: But there's a quantitative and data problem that needs to be solved. And not just for the pharma companies, but for insurers as well.
3: The second thing is insurance companies. One of the reasons there is so little insurance in those markets is it's very difficult for an insurer to price a policy, right? When they don't know anything about those individuals. So that's where it's very, very important to be able to measure, measure basic uh, biomarkers, understand the health state of those patients, to be able to potentially go back to insurance companies and, and tell them, look, those people living in that area or are coming to this clinic, there's this many people who, you know, may be healthy or may have a problem. Then you can
1: know exactly how do you price your policies, depending
3: on what's out there.
1: The goal of all of this, ultimately, is to change the culture of both doctors and patients to approach healthcare from a more proactive perspective than at present.
0: But right now, just given the sheer cost and lack of access to some of the programs and tests... Nobody can even benefit from it, you know. So if you can change the way we approach the reactive healthcare, you also liberate people's minds to be able to think proactively about how they can improve their health. Even the doctors can start to give people more information about proactive ways of preventing worse diseases. It's a mind, it's a paradigm shift, and it will happen in trickles. You have to tackle the reactive medicine or implement reactive medicine first simply because of the current situation and the sheer cost of some of these specialist tests required. And then slowly when you unravel and resolve that, you can start to bring in a lot more proactive medicine initiatives into countries and into the continent.
1: When we come back, we'll get into the logistics side of the healthcare equation. But before that, here's another word from our sponsor, MFS Africa. Earlier in the show, we heard a bit from Julius Tichelar, a partner at AfricanVest, on their recent investment in MFS Africa's $100 million Series C. One thing we talked about that is something we talked with MFS Africa's CEO Dario Kuju about in our interview episode with him, and that is a common theme when discussing infrastructure and development on the African continent, is time horizons and just how early we truly are in the African fintech space. And for that reason, AfricanVest takes a specific approach to investments, as much-needed patient capital in the ecosystem as well.
2: We started investing heavily in financial services in 2007, 2008. Here we managed an early growth VC fund and the sector-specific fund for financial services. The financial services fund is called FIVE, which stands for Financial Inclusion Vehicle. And let's say the unique feature there is that it's an evergreen or perpetual vehicle. So so we're basically quite patient investors with that vehicle, and it allows us to deploy capital in slightly different ways, and we're able to stay with our portfolio and and build partnerships and and build real long-term value, which is really powerful, I think, in our sector. And we found that a limited time window was quite limiting on the companies, but also on us as an investor. We felt that we needed more time. Also towards regulators, knowing that a patient investor is coming in, I think, brings a lot of comfort to regulators and also to management teams and and founders. We as a firm believe that payments are still to grow in Africa for a very, very long time. We are just starting, when you compare most African markets to the West, I have to say, I think we're just starting in Africa. And MFS has really positioned itself really in the middle of all this. And there's so much more growth potential in the payment space. The online and e-commerce market is also just starting in Africa. And being at the heart of of all this with our investment in MFS is really exciting.
1: Before the break, we talked a bit about bringing more payers into the system, which is crucially important in increasing the level of care we hope to achieve across African markets. But even then, there's still a last mile distribution problem given the fragmented nature of pharmacies and small healthcare facilities. And there's therefore a drug availability problem for the pharmacy's customers.
4: My name is Suleiman, and I am the general manager on the operations side of
1: things for Shelf Life at Field. I spoke to Suleiman Sule at the Nigerian health tech startup Field about this very problem.
4: 55% of pharmacies still regularly stock out, still need more finance in order to carry more inventory. As it is, community pharmacies are only able to stock about 30% of what the registered products in the market is, so there's still... First, there's a gap in the number of products they carry. And when you combine that with the access to finance, there are fewer treatment options available for the end users when they walk into the pharmacy.
1: Much like the B2B commerce platforms we heard from in episode five of this season, Shelf Life aggregates pharmacies at the last mile, handles orders and delivery for them, and provides access to finance through a pay-as-you-sell model.
4: What we've done is we've curated a list of over a thousand unique products, which would constitute what a subscription is. From the moment that is done, Shelf Life basically takes over the management of those products. So now we begin to use our data planning tools to figure out how much quantity you need on a week-by-week basis. We show up with a box of products. At the same time, we do an inventory count on what you've sold, and that's how the data gets back into the system on what's moving, what type of product, where it's moving, what are the attributes of the area that's moving. And then that is used to plan your supplies for the next period. So it's all automated. Now, pay as you sell, all of these inventory we're advancing to the pharmacy comes at no upfront cost. So that basically solves the financing problem, as well as brings a layer of intelligence into how we
1: plan the products they stock. Now, beyond the fact that this creates wider availability of prescription drugs for consumers, it does another important thing in the context of pharmacies being the first point of care for many Africans when they are sick. Shelf Life helps them grow their revenue, allowing them to provide additional healthcare services to their customers.
4: We've seen pharmacies would start with typically 100 subscriptions, and over time it goes to an average of 300, 400 subscriptions This, for us, the biggest thing is this more treatment opportunities for people out there. The average pharmacy would spend about 15% of their work week in procurement-related activities. Now, this is not providing pharmaceutical care. This is trying to compile that list, making that drive down to the supplier. So this is something we've been able to eliminate or reduce to a very minute degree. Um, At the core, the pharmacies we work with have pharmaceutical care at the core of their practice. And what you begin to see is, in addition to them offering like a minor ailment service where you have your BP machine, you come in, you get your blood sugar taken, you get your weight and all of those parameters measured, there's also sales of these products sitting on the shelves as part of what we offer. So an interesting part is, saying malaria. In trust over time. Now you see a shift from empiric treatment to people now saying, "Okay, why don't you get a quick malaria test before we know what to prescribe to you or for you to manage this?" So I think there's definitely that shift. It's less reactive. Um, the, the proliferation of these rapid diagnostic test keeps coming in, whether it's for typhoid, it's for malaria, you even get it for some stuff like hepatitis, HIV happening in the pharmacy as well. That has been really localized now, and we're hoping that that trend continues.
1: Now, there's one more thing to talk about with regards to logistics and drug availability. Back to the question of who pays. In many cases, it's governments and governments in particular need help with distribution. And many of the supply chains in question include not only drugs, but medical supplies and products like blood. So while Shelf Life is tackling this problem on the ground, another company is taking an aerial approach.
5: My name is uh, Israel Bimpe. I'm currently a director of Africa To Market at Zipline.
1: Zipline is known for its autonomous drones that deliver medical and other essential goods in hard-to-reach areas in Rwanda and Ghana.
5: We really work in this broad supply chain system that is very government-focused, and it's all the products that citizens usually receive for free or under a national government scheme. It's mostly generic products and it's mostly supplied to a government-owned entity.
1: The problem with how governments distribute these products, given their limited resources, is problematic for outlying hospitals and pharmacies.
5: What's disruptive or different about our service is uh, traditional supply chain has a way, especially in healthcare or in pharmaceutical services, has a way of not favoring the hospitals or the health facility. So usually a government buys a ton of products centralize it then distribute it on a regional level and then the regional level uh, based on so many inputs kind of building an outward supply chain to go distribute to a hospital based on infrastructure quality how many products they have in payment structures they kind of do that distribution on a monthly basis on a quarterly basis or on a yearly basis and so what zipline kind of came up with is we centrally locate ourselves somewhere in the country with the ability to have a radius and a service area of about 20,000 square kilometer, and we can deliver to any of those health facilities from that central point. When we started in Rwanda, I think we started with blood products. That was a no-brainer usually to start with drones because of the nature of blood products in terms of being hard to store and sporadically used, and just generally difficult in supply and demand.
1: So here's how Zipline works.
5: We build what we call a distribution center or a hub somewhere in the country, often outside the city, two to three hours drive outside the city to make sure that we are able to maximize the radius, a full circle that we can serve of health facilities. And that distribution center is part drone port, part warehouse. And so the drone port side is everything that has to do with flight operation and the warehouse is... Inventory management is a customer service kind of call center. And then, you know, for us to be able to serve a hospital, a hospital has to show us a, about two parking slot space where each of our deliveries will be happening. And so we understand the need and demand of about 300 hospitals per hub that we get to serve. And then we get the suppliers, or usually either the central medical store, the National Center for Blood Transfusion, or the vaccines program. They bring a supply almost once a week or once a month, depending on how we agree with them, by SKU. And then the hospital place an order via phone, via WhatsApp, via text, or via a web interface. ZipLine we quickly process and pick and pack the package in the fulfillment warehouse. It's then handed over to the flight operator. We load it on the drone and then it takes off. And usually we communicate with the hospital in that process of uh, when the drone takes off five minutes before landing. And as soon as it delivers its package and the drone return, the delivery from when the order is received to when the plane takes off, we try and make it under 10 minutes.
1: And then the delivery from warehouse to hospital takes place in under 45 minutes. Now... Everything from the warehouse design to the design of the drones, which are fixed-wing drones that drop off the packages to maximize battery life, as opposed to multi-rotor drones that take off and land, it is all designed in such a way to fulfill on-demand delivery, which is important, ultimately, in reducing the cost of delivery, in particular, of high-value products.
5: From a cost perspective, we believe to be at par with the existing cost. Usually, everything that goes into the cost of service that the patient has to pay or the hospital has to pay on behalf of the patient really includes things like, apart from driving, the nurses, the driver, and other people who have to go pick the product and so on and so forth. And so I think one of the ways we've gone about it is, one, if it's a high value product, we are actually cheaper compared to the current cost because they usually tend to overstock on high value products. Blood, for example, or injectables, I would say anti-snake venom, oxytocin injectables, those are all really high value products. And so what the hospitals do is they never want to run out of them. So they usually overstock with the ability to kind of, they allow themselves to waste some of those products, which means that they are taking on the risk. And these
1: products are expensive.
5: I'll give you one example. One blood unit is usually platelets or cryoprecipitate kind of blood unit costs about $100 to produce. And so if a hospital only consume one of every five that they get themselves, that's $400 that could be wasted across, I don't know, 70 to 100 half facilities that are transfusing across the country. And so we kind of factor all those costs into, I think, a transport to transport comparison. We can be a bit more expensive, but if you look at the entire kind of uh, ecosystem, I would say we tend to now go at par or sometimes get very cheap.
1: And the idea is not to leapfrog infrastructure, but to rethink medical supply chains and on-demand logistics, which, like we spoke about with Shelf Life, frees up time and capital for these healthcare facilities to invest in greater care for their patients.
5: One thing we've seen is a lot of these small clinics tend to have three months' worth of stock on their shelf. That's usually 10 times their capital, for example. Instead of investing that money that they have on their shelf into maybe buying a better machine for eye care or an ecography machine or something like that. I think our role is to really get the governments and the hospitals and the hospital system to rethink that process. I think that's one end of the spectrum of like, can you change your supply chain system in a way that you don't need to overstock every single small clinic, for example, and just leverage instant logistics with centralized stocking, so that everyone has access to what they need exactly when they need them. So I think for us, we really want people to think just differently about how each hospital access and stock and store and and kind of use medical products and pharmaceuticals and how much more they tend to do and spend on that.
1: Now, while we're at the frontier of health tech, I wanna talk about the ideal state and what will become possible on top of that which is being built by the entrepreneurs and companies we've spoken to in this episode. It's one thing to bring diagnostics closer to patients at the last mile, or to solve distribution problems or bring more payers into the healthcare ecosystem. It's another to rethink on-demand last-mile logistics. Then it's another thing altogether to cure cancer or other diseases. And that's ultimately what 54 Genes Biobank is hoping to do.
0: The 54 Genes Biobank is in effect a repository of samples of different types from different ethnic groups, from different diseases, and from different healthy communities, because you also need samples from healthy people to understand what is different in the disease uh, samples collected. And we have established this biobank with approval from the National Health Research Ethics Committee in Nigeria, but also in partnership with teaching hospitals
1: In medical research, the diversity of African genes could play a role in the discovery of new drugs, yet Africans have historically been left out of research and drug trials. A major part of 54Gene's mission in conducting diagnostics and collecting samples is also, with the patient's permission, using those samples for research purposes.
0: What that means is we have multiple sample types from across Africa, represented in our biobank. I think up to, to date, it's covering about 300 ethnic groups which is about you know, a fifth of all the ethnic groups represented in on the continent. And from that diversity in sample types, we can start to look for patterns. Is a genetic profile of a disease the same in this group of uh, people versus another group? Are they the same as what we see as the map in Caucasians and non-Africans? Does that genetic profile look worse in some patients and can we relate the the severity to how ill the patient is. So together with the genetic data that the lab generates, we can start to make meaningful insights to better ways to treat diseases or targets that we can develop new drugs for to help patients.
1: This objective, first and foremost, has possible implications for African patients.
0: The reason we're doing all of this in the first place is one, to understand whether the drugs that are currently in use for treating some diseases are the right drugs, are they the right drugs, are they the right dosage for Africans? Because of the fact that African data wasn't well represented in the drug discovery efforts for many drugs that are in Africa today, when patients get treated with these drugs, sometimes they don't benefit well enough or at all. So the genetics, the information we are harnessing will tell us if those drugs should be the correct drugs for use in the first place, and whether the dosing is sufficient for the African population. So with all of that in mind, what we're trying to achieve is when a patient goes to their doctor in Nigeria, in Africa, they get the best drug for them.
1: And beyond local implications, the research could have global implications as well.
0: The other thing that we might also achieve is novel targets. Africa is the home of every other population. So in the migration of different people outside of Africa, that genetic pool is diluted out, right? And anthropologists will give you more, you know, in-depth details about this. But when you go to where the pool originated from, there might be regions that have never been tapped that will not just benefit Africans, but non-Africans alike, given that every, you know, their origin is Africa. So, we might unravel a target that gives us a better chance of discovering or manufacturing a drug that treats a disease even better or that cures it the first time round.
1: Now, with all that being said, as my B-Mike Shio Foluio and I sat down for this episode's retrospective, there were still some newer, outstanding questions that were raised. We said at the top of the show that poor healthcare is a wicked problem, one that's caused by a variety of different intertwined factors. And we certainly believe that to be true, as Shia and I reflected on this topic and asked a few more questions that weren't covered in this episode. Take a listen. I still think the most interesting thing to me is this idea about like um, market development for diagnostics. So on the one hand, you have an increase in technology reducing the price of diagnostics, but then on the other hand, you have this question around whether pharma companies should subsidize the cost of diagnostics.
6: Okay, so why pharma and not insurance companies?
1: Well, first of all, pharma has a product to sell.
6: But there's like a moral hazard, right?
1: Yeah, so that's also what Emilian talked about, That is that you could better price insurance policies by knowing more about the patients in question or the customers in question. And so I wonder if it should be both, right? So I don't know, like what would we rather see? Would we rather see people insured, right? I guess that's the, we'd rather see them insured than just buying more drugs from pharma companies.
6: Yeah. So like the insurer seems like the more natural, what do you call it? I like that, the payers. Because I think that was the question I was asking myself through the episode as well. It's just like, this is a lot of stuff. Who is the customer for what? And who pays for what? Or who's the end customer and who's the payer in all these um, different parts of the value chain? Cause, and clearly in our environment, it's just it's not even slightly feasible for it to be for the individuals to be the payers
1: no but it's also not slightly feasible for the individuals to be the payers anywhere right i mean the insurance companies are the payers not the individuals mm. you know mm. but that's the problem is when people aren't uninsured
6: yeah there was a lot of questions that i had that i actually would have wanted to ask the guys talking as well like
1: what is the
6: prerequisite for an insurance product the problem was like there wasn't enough data so you couldn't make models that make sense right but you would have to imagine that there's enough, like, you could price in uncertainty, let me even put it that way. So you, you could take a very safe approach. Like, why it, it doesn't seem to exist at all. And that seems like an excessive. And I was wondering, is that just because the product itself, like, what you would claim from your insurer is just not yet at a point where it's even a good enough product? Do you know what I mean? people understand the concept of saving. I don't think that's, um, and they're able to do so. The thing is like, is it worth it? (laughs) I don't know. And that sounds like the same thing, but it's not. The calculus is where I think the, I don't think conceptually people don't want it. It's like the calculus, like what am I getting in return? What is my short-term needs? What might be my long-term needs?
1: There's also trust of the insurance companies and and that they're you know, when people file claims that they actually get paid out and they get paid out judiciously. And then, yeah, I think it's also in that respect product as well, because if the calculus is it's not worth it, is that because in the case of a very low cost insurance that like a lot is actually out of coverage, you know what I mean? So you're paying for this thing and maybe you get your prescription drugs or whatever for, you know, or hospitalization for free or, or you know, covered or whatever, but then your prescription drugs are not included. And so I, I wonder if, um, yeah, but that's, I mean, just going back to, again, like that's the world we want to see, right? Is everyone insured? Yeah.
6: I think the interesting thing of just to bring it back to the episode, I think the interesting thing about the, I didn't quite get a sense of was what are people's and what are they noticing about the end customer's attitude to healthcare? That thing you just spoke about a little bit about like the level of trust in the healthcare institutions, the educational understanding about, you know, they spoke a lot about proactive healthcare and more from a soft perspective, what the like, what shifts need to be made. You know, they're starting with reactive medicine first because that's where you know the low hanging fruit is or the big wins are and then that now gives you the room to start thinking about proactive and i was just kind of wondering if you can't do both at the same time and and actually just what what comes into that understanding because insurance is also proactive kind of health management right and then also like you know kind of a little bit of chicken and egg right you need payers payers need a product to exist for it to be worth it And so you have to make, do you make the product or find the pairs? Like, what is the balance between those two things? Because it feels a bit chicken and eggy.
1: Well, just on the soft stuff, like, think about it for a second, though. We live in a world where people readily smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol, and half the world thinks that, like, vaccines are bad. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, like, it's the same sort of question about how... How do you convince people? And that's a, it's a weird thing to me about health. Like, you would think that people would care a lot more about their own health. But it's a really wicked problem in that sense.
6: It really is. And, and, and there are ways, I think. I think there are ways. South Africa is a very interesting example. I think people in South Africa are fairly, um, well, it's reactive, but in the reactive probably has developed A fairly proactive, maybe not proactive, at least the infrastructure around health is um, quite pervasive compared to anywhere else I've seen on the continent. As a response though, I guess.
1: Well, as a response to what, like the biggest HIV and TB rates in the world?
6: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: I have no sense of, but it'd be interesting to see how much of the funding for that infrastructure came from Gates or the world health organization, or
6: that was another thing I was interested in. I was wondering as a payer, what role are all these DFIs? Because I mean, I don't know how much more development you can get than healthcare, right. And access to healthcare. So what, what role are those guys playing? I I imagine it must be a huge role, but you guys didn't really discuss that.
1: In this context, maybe we should have, but the thing on that actually is like, And this goes back to when we did the interview episode with Goke and also in talking with Zipline in this episode was like, on the one hand, there's the availability of money in the system to do certain objectives or outcomes, but then there's an efficiency element that exists or doesn't exist in the context of like, everything is just made on vibes right there's not enough diagnostics there's not electronic medical records and then also in the context of like zipline and the availability of essential medicines like if they're stocking you know whatever percentage greater of their working capital and inventory and a lot of that's going to go to waste like there's a lot of other problems above and beyond just the availability of money or the availability of supplies that are bought with the money that these grant-funded organizations provide. And that is perhaps, you know, the role that technology is playing. It's like maybe there actually is some good money in the system, you know, not just from the development institutions, but also from, you know, pharma and from insurance. But the efficiency and the the input-output, the data, you know, the logistics, like all of that, is struggles to deal with the fragmentation of the systems.
6: Yeah, it's it's very complicated. uh. I was like, man, this is like so many moving parts. I can like, even still now I don't feel, um, you know, generally I can kind of wrap my head around stuff. I don't feel my head is wrapped around this value chain at all. Well,
1: it's the same thing as earlier in the season with fintech where we said it's very hard to create a podcast episode. And we were talking about fintech in the midst of a three part series that we did. So maybe moving forward, if we want to cover a topic, it needs to be a full season.
6: Yeah, and and no, I think that's the cool thing about this season as well. Is like, it's like shit. We don't know shit.
1: We really don't know anything.
6: Let's go deeper. <laughs> you know, which is cool.
1: I like that. That's it for this week's episode of the Flip. Next week, we explore another topic that we don't know anything about: farming and agri-processing. We'll see you then.